0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we enter into the final week of our series, Easter According to the Gospel of John, with a message titled, Doubting Thomas. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: I'm reading John 20, 24 to 29. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, most of us are very familiar with this Bible passage. We've all heard the words, Doubting Thomas. Don't be a Doubting Thomas. You may have heard it in Sunday school, and if we're not careful, we might think that Thomas represents those people who demand proof in order to believe. That is, they require objective evidence upon which their faith stands. In contrast, at least, that's how some of us have been taught, how much better to simply believe without any proof required. But I don't think that's what the passage is teaching at all, and neither do I think it's wrong to ask for reasons to believe. You see, there has arisen, I think, a misconception that faith and reason, faith and looking for evidence, are opposites. You know, one hears this perspective on a regular basis in the press, in popular literature, and the way many people think about faith. See, on the one side, there's science, and on the other side, there's religion. On one side are facts, and on the other, there's faith. See, I was once called by a secular newspaper reporter, and he began with that assumption. I noticed he didn't even ask me the question of what I thought was the definition of faith. He, he simply launched right in into his assumptions that faith and evidence were on the opposite sides. See, I don't know about you, but both before I came to Christ and then in my early days of my new faith, I needed to settle some intellectual doubts before I could fully believe and even rejoice in my faith. I came to Christ when I was 18, and even though I had been raised in a Christian home, I had not been given evidence for the Christian faith. See, and I needed that, and even after coming to faith, you know, my first five years in the faith was reading everything I could that would either point to or against Christ. In the end, I had a satisfied mind, but it wasn't just in my first five years as a believer. You know, I graduated from a seminary that would be characterized as liberal, You know, I was taught that the Bible was full of errors, and very early in my seminary career, I decided that if what I was being taught was true, it would be a dishonorable thing to carry on in the faith. So I set out in an intensive search to examine everything that I was being taught, again, after I had seen that the critics of the faith were not on solid ground at all. I, again, rested in the sufficiency of the evidence for the truth of Scripture. And so, seen from one perspective, you might think of me as a doubting Thomas. I mean, I needed evidence to believe. So then, what do we make of Jesus' statement in verse 29? Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that can sound like, blessed are those who don't need any evidence. Well, is that what Jesus is saying? Well, we might want to see what the rest of the scripture has to say about that. Listen to God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. And interestingly enough, the God of heaven comes and offers us forgiveness and cleansing. And he extends an offer to us by inviting us to come to him and reason. Or consider 2 Peter 1:16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Again, in this passage, Peter invites the reader to consider the evidence given to us from firsthand eyewitness testimony. Or listen to Jesus as he offers an invitation to all those who are, shall we say, sitting on the fence when it comes to faith. Indeed, it's none other than John that records this in John 14, verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, believe on account of watching the miracles that I have been doing and through them come to the right conclusion. Believe on account of the evidence. See, faith isn't the opposite of reason. Faith uses reason in order to believe. No one can truly believe if they think the evidence is pointing in a different direction. You see, show me a man or woman who closes his or her eyes and says, I just believe because I believe, and I'll show you a person that has very little faith at all. It's simply gullibility. Listen, I want to show that true faith does use reason to believe. But faith requires something that reason alone can't provide. So let me repeat that. Faith uses something that reason can't by itself supply. Reason by itself is insufficient, for reason is often betrayed by the tool of the professional skeptic, the person that never gets beyond skepticism. Indeed, this person becomes the cynic. Others never distinguish between reason and the dictates of their own deceitful hearts. See, in this case, reason simply becomes justification for that which their hearts truly love. You know, in this case, Pascal was right when he said that the heart has reasons of which the mind knows little. Reason by itself often leads to error and the power to deceive ourselves. But for now, let's consider our story. It begins with Thomas. And what do we know about this man? Well, he's mentioned in two previous occasions in the book of John. The first time is in John 11. Jesus and disciples got a message from two women, Mary and Martha, telling them that their brother Lazarus was desperately ill. They want Jesus to come and heal him. But Jesus and his disciples were at that time in a place called Bethania, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus were in a place called Bethany, which meant that Jesus was 150 kilometers away. So wherever you live, put that in terms that you can identify with. I mean, pick a place on the map that's 150 kilometers away from you, or a little over 90 miles away. Now imagine the only way that you can get there is to walk. Then you'll get the idea. But what's more, the timing of the news couldn't have been worse. An arrest warrant was already out for Jesus and people were looking to kill him. Walking all that way would make him vulnerable. So let's follow what the text says next. It's in John 11:14 14 to 16. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, if that doesn't sound pessimistic, I don't know what is. Okay, says Thomas, if we've got to go to Bethany, I bet we're all going to get killed. So we're all going to die, so let's go and die just like Lazarus. Now, you know, what does that tell you about his personality? Well, I think he's definitely a glass half-empty kind of a guy. He's a pessimist. He's a man who fears for the worst. That's his disposition. So let's get the second time that Thomas is mentioned in this book. It's found in John 14. And there Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going away. He's going to the Father, and there he will prepare a place for them. Then he will come back to them, and then he assures them, you actually already know the place to where I'm going. And then Thomas speaks, and his short speech is recorded in John 14, verse 5. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? In other words, he's now panicking. He says, Whatever you're telling us, Jesus, it sounds bad, and it appears that we're going to be separated from you forever. It appears that you think that we know something about where you're going, but we don't know. Now, put those two incidences together and get that insight into Thomas. He's a man ruled by fear, and he's a man who's ruled by a pessimistic personality. So the first thing we read is that Thomas, according to verse 24 in our chapter, was not there when the disciples were meeting on that Sunday, when when Jesus rose from the dead. So, let's ask this question, where was he? Now, I think it does no good to imagine that he had other more pressing items on his busy schedule. Nothing could have been more important than meeting to discuss the testimony of the women and to hear what they had to say. Thomas, however, must not have thought so. He stayed away.
0: There is no event more significant to the body of Christ than Easter. It's a time to reflect on the ultimate sacrifice made by Jesus that paid the price for humanity's sins. To help us reflect on this holy occasion, we put together a special short form video feature of select scriptures from Dr. John's new series, Easter According to the Gospel of John. We believe this video will help prepare your heart for Easter So all you need to do is head over to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or visit our website at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, don't forget to click the subscribe button and never miss another ministry feature video. Thank you for all you do to support this ministry. For more information or to gift this ministry with your support, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: You know, John never tells us why Thomas stayed away, but it's quite likely that he was too discouraged and defeated and depressed to even be there. Clearly another meeting had been called. The 12 minus Thomas and of course minus Judas had been reduced to 10. And those 10 had all now seen Jesus and talked with him and touched him and had seen him eat. And so they do the only thing that we would expect them to do. They would meet again. And this time Thomas will be there. The others make sure of that. And as they meet, the others kept telling him, over and over again, he's risen. Now, everyone's telling him the same story. Jesus is resurrected. We have seen him. Now, if you're Thomas, there are several ways to handle those reports. And first, he might have asked himself, how credible are these men? I mean, are they accustomed to lying and making stuff up? And second, if this is merely some form of delusion, what's the possibility that all 10 of them had been equally deluded? And furthermore, what of the other evidence that the women saw him once in a group and once with Mary Magdalene alone? And if he had thought about it further, he might have asked, did Jesus say he would rise again? And and did the scripture indicate that he would rise? I mean, one piece of evidence after another. But still, Thomas will not believe. He's in danger of becoming the professional skeptic. And furthermore, Thomas is a pessimist. He's hardwired to look at the darker side of life. Look again at verse 25b. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So notice that the Greek word place, as in place my finger, that's the word ballo. It's often translated as to throw. It can also be translated as to shove unless I shove my finger into the mark of the nails. You know, for him, he has to get his finger deep into there to really feel it. Then I'll believe. This is not just a man looking for evidence. He wants to make it as hard as possible to believe. It's now Sunday, exactly one week after the resurrection. Thomas has been dragged into the room. The doors are locked. Evidently, the disciples are still very much afraid. You know, it's been only a week ago that Jesus was crucified, and even though he now has an indestructible body, they don't. And suddenly in a room where the doors are locked, Jesus is standing among them again. Now, I know that many people have argued that he's able to walk through locked doors, but this is fascinating. The Bible never tells us how Jesus got into the room, only that he was there. And with that, he says exactly what he said a week ago, peace to you. And then turning to Thomas, literally in the Greek, You know, John translates Jesus as saying, and bring your finger here. Or as I like to translate it, Thomas, come here. And while you're coming, bring your finger with you, the one you said you'd have to shove into my side. (laughs) And I wonder if Thomas grasped the obvious. Jesus knew precisely what he had been saying. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether he did that, but at that point, how could he not? You know, I picture him hesitant and yet putting out his hand to the fold of Jesus clothing right into his side and feeling real flesh and a genuine healed wound. And and as he's touching and examining, Jesus says literally, stop being an unbeliever and be a believer. So let's step back for a moment and examine what we've just read. Let's examine the challenge of the skeptic. You know, the world is full of skeptics, but is it wrong to doubt things? Well, I don't think so. You know, all of science is based on the presupposition of critical thinking of not simply accepting things without a thorough analysis. Doubting by itself isn't wrong. There are a lot of things that I doubt. I mean, I doubt all the alien abduction stories that I hear. I I doubt a lot of things reported in the media. I doubt a lot of claims made by professional diet companies. I, I doubt a lot of things. But here's the challenge to the skeptic. Skeptics must get beyond the personality of doubt. And what I mean is, that it is possible to move beyond skepticism to I will never believe-ism. Years ago, I had a very good friend who told me that he wouldn't consider the evidence for the Christian faith, because should he become a Christian, he said, his friends would mock him. But eventually, that man did surrender to Christ. You might remember C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Cambridge scholar, he had the same issue. How does one tell one's colleagues of one's conversion? And as the evidence for the Christian faith began to mount up for him, you know, he became more aware of it. And he describes himself then as kicking and struggling and resentful and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. In fact, listen to Lewis's conversion story. You must picture me alone in that room in maudlin, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in England." So why reluctant? Because at the moment of conversion, his identity shifts He no longer calls himself an unbeliever or a skeptic, but a believer. And there are those who simply can't accept that of themselves. It's a change in identity from doubter to believer, and that's far too an emotional bridge for them to cross. In that, they betray that their intellect is only used to justify themselves and not discover the truth. They don't submit to truth. See, the challenge to the skeptic is to get beyond the personality of doubt. Thomas, yes, was a doubter, not because evidence was lacking, but because he was a pessimist. He could not believe that death could be defeated. The news, if you will, just can't be that good. If the news is that good, it can't be true. That's what he tells himself. That's the reality of the human condition. Our sin nature simply can't accept what the evidence tells us. What's needed then is a change of heart. There has to be a willingness to believe. Do not disbelieve, says Jesus, but believe. Now we do know that the disposition that allows us to believe, that's a disposition that's graciously given to us by God. It's a gift. It doesn't mean that the command to believe isn't there, but that's why faith is more than simple reason. So let's get back to Pascal's statement. The heart, says Pascal, has its reasons, reasons that the mind is completely ignorant of. You know, in that sense, we would think of the heart as a series of affections, things we deeply love and things we deeply hate. But what Pascal really wants to say is that reason is almost never pure reason. Even today, there are those who will not consider the resurrection it's anti-scientific they say miracles they say must be discounted without even considering the possibility and why because if we admit miracles we admit that god has a claim on our lives and so reason is used to counter the evidence not to submit to it the problem is not a lack of evidence the problem is the heart now look again at 27b to 28. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. You know, with Jesus' command to start believing, Thomas falls onto his knees and says those extraordinary words, my Lord and my God. There are those who argue that Thomas couldn't have actually said that. How could he have such a high view of Jesus in a short period of time? How could he move from skeptic to believer so quickly? But we need to remember that Thomas is a Jew a man who is taught that the Old Testament is true from childhood. He knew, for instance, the story of Abraham in Genesis 18. Three men came to visit him, and in the end, one of them was God. He knew the story of Joshua and his encounter with a man who turned out to be the commander of the Lord's army, in which he was commanded to take off his sandals just as Moses had, for he was standing on holy ground before that man. See, Thomas knew the story of Samson's parents and how they realized that the angel they were talking to was actually God come to them in human form. Now as his finger was placed into Jesus' side, he comes to the realization of who it was that he was always dealing with. For three years he had been following Jesus, and now in this one amazing moment, he suddenly realizes he has been all this time in the presence of almighty and holy God. He falls onto his knees and realizes what he has never understood, and that is the challenge to the skeptic. The time has come for you to stop identifying yourself as a skeptic, as if that were a badge of honor that you have taken upon your life. The call to believe is a call to put aside the things that you have honored before, your pride in skepticism. You are now called to humble yourself as Thomas did and fall before Jesus and call him that which is true of him, my
0: Lord and my God. Thanks for your message, John. You know, Thomas is an interesting figure. I I think there's those that would question uh, Thomas's need for proof. Was he wrong to ask that?
1: Yeah, I'm, I've been trying to make the point that, no, he's not wrong to ask it. But however, what I've been trying to say is that I think Thomas simply did not pay attention to the proofs that were already offered to him. And I'm also making the case, and that's, I think, the point that Jesus is making, is that only the those 11 that were in the room actually saw him raised from the dead. We know after that 500 did, but now in our day, we haven't. And so we are left with the kind of proofs that Thomas ignored. So I'm going to say that the problem is not that we ask for proofs. I think we should, because we need to be given reasons to believe. But when we are given reasons that are, well, I'm going to say that are convincing, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts at the same time, we should not resist the Holy Spirit, nor the evidence that's being presented to us. And we should then do the next thing, which is to, of course, repent of our sins, be baptized and join the fellowship of God's people and become a disciple of Jesus unto death. So
0: Thomas leads us to that conclusion. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Easter According to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Bible speaks to the community of believers as the body of Christ. Christians are the hands and feet, voice and heart of God. The Spirit who unites us works through us to do His will. The ministries of Back to the Bible Canada rely on these principles. As Dr. John reminds us, the most effective missions, the most effective outreach of the church is almost never accomplished alone. Partnership is always key. We're deeply appreciative for those who join us in mission through their prayers and financial gifts. Faithfully presenting the Word of God across Canada cannot be the effort of a single part. It requires a partnership with God's people. If you wish to support the mission of this ministry or become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.